in particular has really studied Paul and has really studied Israel and he's amazing he's a New Testament guy so he has really brought those two things together beautifully so if you want to dig deeper in 9 through 11 I recommend this and actually I talked to somebody this week that they had it on hold at their library so I guess um, whatever library some libraries actually carry these which is kind of cool um, but what I want us to do this morning is we are next week going to start reading in chapters 12 of, of Romans. And again, Romans was written to the church in Rome. It was a strategic letter knowing that in that culture, Rome was going to be a strategic place where the gospel was going to go forth. So he really wanted to make sure that the gospel message, the truth of it all, uh, the understanding of it all, was going to go out well, and it did because we are sitting here, right? People continue to pass the gospel message on correctly so that by the power of the Spirit and by the obedience of Christ's followers, the message has gone forth, and we are here. So that's why Paul started this letter to the Romans and, and covered his theology so deeply. Um, another is because there were a lot of Jews and Gentiles in that church, and he really wanted to bring unity um, between the Jews and the Gentiles, there is one God, there is one salvation in Jesus Christ, there is one message for both Jews and Gentiles. Um, and so we saw a little bit of that 9 through 11, but that's been throughout the whole book. Um, so that's why Paul wrote the book of Romans. But we, what I want us to do today is before we move to chapter 12, because at the beginning of chapter 12, there's this word that makes us think, what is he referring to? And it, Pretty in the first sentence of chapter 12, it says, therefore. And what he is saying is, I'm about to shift, because remember, this all came in one letter to the Romans. So that this chapter 12, and again, they didn't have chapter breaks. So when he put in the therefore, he was meaning for all of those Christians and the, the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, to reflect back on everything that he had written in 1 through 11 before they move on into chapter 12. Because I think a lot of times, a temptation, and yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and put it that way. A temptation for Christians is for us to go back to a morality based upon our own strength. And so chapter 12 really starts off with being a living sacrifice and, and, and giving us some, and love one another and respond to authority and has all these great teachings in it. Chapter 12 through 16, it's very practical. But Paul never meant for us to practice the practical without understanding who we are in Christ, what Christ has done, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? So before we go into the therefore of chapter 12, I want us to open up our Bibles together and slowly go through what God has revealed to us in chapters 1 through 11. Um, I'm not teaching on this. I'm most, uh, every now and then I'm going to highlight something, but for the most part, I'm just going to read some verses that really help us understand what he was trying to say and communicate in each chapter and us put together this whole thing. It has been work for us to work through Romans, hasn't it? I got to the uh, last week when I went and I sat down realizing I was going to be teaching again. Um, I read through 9 through 11 and I got really encouraged because last Thursday in the evening study, we kind of opened it up for more discussion and it got really personal. And they said, so Rhonda, like, so how do you like 
engage all of these truths? Like, how do you engage? You know, I talked a little bit and shared some, and then I go, but to be honest, I'm, I'm spinning right now. Like, I'm, this, this, like, this, like, makes me just, like, totally spin because I understand some of it, but I don't fully grasp all of it, but I really want to. So it, like, just, and then trying to work on it so that I'm explaining it to other people, and it's, like, just, I was just like this by the end of Thursday night, and I, and I told them that. And then Shauna and I were talking later that evening um, when everybody had left. We were out by the car, and we were talking about it. And I go, I feel so bad that I'm spinning. Like, I wish that I, like, really had a grasp of this and was able just to go, here. <laughs> here. Here. And I go, but I'm not. I'm, like, I'm, I'm still spinning. And she said, Ron, I am too. And so we both went home like, okay, well, Lord, help us, right? <laughs> Lord, have mercy. And so I get to reading the end of chapter 11. And Norman T. Wright, who, again, I've shared is like a spiritual dad to me now. He's one of my favorite teachers. Uh, over in London, he teaches in Israel. I mean, like he's a big guy. And he says in his commentary, if you've gotten to this part in Romans, you probably have what we call spiritual vertigo. <laughs> yes, I do. I like got up. I was like sitting on my couch in my bathrobe and I'm like, I do. That's what I have. I have, I have that. And evidently that's kind of normal for Christians to have that a little bit, right? So that was actually very encouraging to me. Um, he, he also said um, uh, intellectual fatigue, right? So we've been working hard really going through Romans, um, but that's kind of why before we move on to the practical, I don't want us to leave our life in Christ out of it. So that's 1 through 11 is our life in Christ, and that is a reality. That's not just something between our ears. That's not just something that makes me spin like part of it is because the Holy Spirit is wanting to transform our thinking and wanting to transform our hearts and trying to keep up with that sometimes is like, well, Lord, you're going to have to do it. And he's like, yes, I will. It is a promise that Christ is our life and we are indwelt with his Holy Spirit and we are dead to sin and alive to God. We are made right with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Those are some of the truths that we have learned, and not of ourselves, but of Christ. And so trying to grasp that in our realities is just going to take some time, but mostly not just time of us trying harder, but time of us just depending on God and continually coming back to the word, continuing to read the word, continuing to seek these truths because these truths are realities. One thing that you'll see, we're going to see this week is there are some things in scriptures that Paul says are mysteries. There are some things in scripture that he says this is truth this is reality for you. You in Christ by faith, not works, are dead to sin and alive to God. And you have been filled with the Holy Spirit because of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, period. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is not Jesus is our example, so we need to really try and live life like him. That's called self-righteousness. We have gifted righteousness. We can't earn it. We can't achieve it. It's all through the life, death, burial, resurrection, or as Sonny and I call it, LBDR. <laughs> life, death, LDBR, burial and resurrection of Christ. Um, and the power, power of the Holy Spirit as we walk and set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That is the Christian life, and then he transforms us. So, that's the reality. I want us to go back to chapter 1. Open up your Bibles, because you're going to be joining me in this. 
I'm going to read some verses that I feel like really help us understand what Paul was trying to say. And again, he did not break it up into chapters. Somebody along the way did, but we're going to go ahead and use those chapters. But in each chapter, there is a truth that Paul is really wanting to get across. Chapter 8, there are a lot of truths, but like I shared with you last week, I'm going to leave most of chapter 8 for you guys to discuss in your groups. So, But I'll, I'll hit some of that. So as I go through each chapter, this really isn't going to be a time for questions. That's going to happen in your group. It's really not a time to um, share personally. We want that to happen in our group. But this would be a time, as I go through each chapter, if there was a specific verse that you're like, oh, okay, Rhonda, you mentioned some good ones, but you can't leave out verse 10. And I'll say, read it. Okay? And we'll just soak in these truths together, and we'll get 1 through 11 before we head on to 12 next week. Does that make sense? That's where we're going. Um, all right. Because there is a new life Christ has for us. That's a reality. That's, some of it's a mystery of how the Holy Spirit transforms us. But I don't want us to keep this in the realm of mystery. I want us to bring this into the realm of reality. Your life is Christ's life. Christ is your new life. You're no longer underneath Adam. We are underneath Christ. How did that happen? Okay, chapter 1. Basically, he starts off with his heart for the church, right? And he's saying, I want to make disciples that make disciples. And here's what you need to know. First of all, um, the one that, and again, I'm skipping over some beautiful things. And if there's one that like you can't skip over this verse, okay, just raise your hand. But these are the ones that I came up with. Um, actually, Denise and I, Denise Briggs and I worked on these together, which was kind of cool. You can get together with a friend and do that. Um, so verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. So the gospel message itself is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is a summary of chapter one, right? That is the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. Whenever we say power, just think of the word change. Anytime something is powerful or something powerful happens, it changes things. So it is not possible for us to hear the gospel of Christ and respond to the gospel of Christ and things in our mind and our heart not change. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, everyone, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17 says, the righteous shall live by faith. We define righteous as God's perfection in every attribute, attitude, behavior, and word. And that faith is being convinced and confident that what God says is really real and worthy of trust even when it's unseen. So righteousness, we are defining as God's perfection. We're not defining it as human morality. Boy, am I hearing the word morality a lot these days, even in the news. It's a very, it's a very interesting thing. But God doesn't look at human morality. God's definition of what is right is his righteousness. God's perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. That is where the world starts. Before anything else, there was God, and he was righteous. Faith is we are convinced and confident that God really is righteous. And what he says is real and worthy of our trust. So that's where the whole thing starts off, right? But then it says, verse 20, God has revealed himself, his righteousness. He has revealed it to everyone. And they have perceived his eternal power and his divine nature. So every person is without excuse. This is what the scriptures say in chapter 1. 21, but they have rejected God, and in rejecting God, he turned them over to their sin. So do you see sin is rejecting God, not trusting him, not responding to his righteousness with worship, 
but instead they rejected God and he turned them over to their sin and their hearts became darkened and their thinking became futile. So in sin, our mind does not think correctly and our hearts are darkened. That is everyone who rejects what God has revealed to them. That's what sin does to us. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Wow, right? They did not see fit to acknowledge God. And a lot of this talk that we see on morality is people not seeing fit to acknowledge God. They're acknowledging the height of humanity, which is the, basically going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. They did not see fit to acknowledge God, and, gave, and God gave them up to a debased mind, that means below what is basic, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. So let's look at that. So chapter 1. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, I'm reading NLT, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires, they know that God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, which God says our sin leads to death. They know this, yet they do them anyway, and worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That was a state of the human race. That is man apart from God. That is man in sin. That's chapter one. Chapter two is basically along the same lines, except for its pointing to the Jewish people. Again, in the book of Romans, he kind of goes back and forth between Jews, speaking to the Jews and speaking to the Gentiles in the church. Because by the time he gets to nine and ten, which we read this week, he wants them to understand you're one church. But for chapter two is basically, and you Jews that look down on their behavior? Because remember when Jesus came on the earth, they were just like, oh, they're tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is hanging out with. And ooh, look at the prostitute that's coming. And if he was really God, he would know that she's a prostitute and he would have nothing to do with her. And he says in chapter 2, you think you're special just because God gave you the law, but you haven't kept the law, so you're no better than them. Your heart, too, has sinned against God. Um, Jews had the law, but they too were breaking the law. And if you'll remember, John, uh, Jesus even said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So chapter two is all about, yeah, you have the scriptures, but you're still not coming to me because the scriptures point to me. So both, chapter 1, Gentile, the world, Jew, all. And that's chapter 3, none are righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So again, this talk of morality, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's basically chapters 1, 2, and the first part of 3. Anything you guys, any verse that I skip over that you feel like, oh, Rhonda, this verse meant so much to me, or this verse brought clarity. Any verse you want to add to those? All right. Chapter 3, verse 21 has two wonderful words at the beginning of it. So we were desperate, dead in our sin. Even though we knew God, we rejected God. We did not think it was he was worthy of our affections, worthy of our attentions, worthy of our trust. Jew and Gentile. So 
So we were separated from God. Verse 21, but now God has provided a way to be right with him apart from the law. A song is going through my head right now. It says, but love broke through, found us in the desert, wandering in the darkness. I was a hopeless fool, but he was hopelessly devoted. He loved us. And he has made a way now for us to be made right with him by the blood of Christ. That's verse 21. 24 and 25, it says, through faith in Jesus, we are made right with God. That's that big word justified that he uses sometimes. God declares us not guilty. Therefore, we are made right with God. This is by his grace. It's a gift. We don't have self-righteousness. We have gifted righteousness. It's a gift to us. On the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God. What we deserved, that chapters 1, 2, and 3, because we so rejected God even when we knew him, the attitude of our heart was so that we did not consider him worthy of our attention and our affection. Like, his love was rejected and that's what wrath is. And that's what we deserved in God's justice. But Jesus, could you put the first slide that has the two pictures up there for me? But Jesus took the wrath of God for us. And the wrath of God was fully satisfied in him. And in doing this, we can be reconciled to God. So when we think of the cross, that look, I mean, that's, I don't even know how to say it. That's, I, I have no words for how awful that would be to be crucified like that. But even more than that, in that moment, what would have been most excruciating is what Romans tells us, is that in that moment, Jesus was taking the full wrath of God for all the sins of the world in that moment. He took all the wrath that your sins deserve. Think of your sin. Think of how, I mean, if, if the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, we miss that all the time. We do not do that, not even close. And that what we deserve is to be separated from God. But yet what Jesus Christ did is take the punishment and the penalty of us of our sin. And it was completely satisfied, the wrath of God in Jesus Christ. Completely satisfied. So we could be made right with God. It says the blood of Christ was shed so we could be made right with God for our, the forgiveness of our sins. So when you think of the crucifixion, don't just think of, oh, that must have been so painful to have a nail dr driven through your hand. Think, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for me. He took my sin and died for it. He was sinless. And when he did that, then when he rose again his right, and conquered sin, and conquered the grave, and conquered Satan's schemes, then all his righteousness was given to me. All my sin on the cross was put on him. After his resurrection, all his righteousness was put on me. And when he ascended to heaven and was standing before the Father as an appropriate full sacrifice for us, the Father said, now my Holy Spirit can be poured out on my people. Forgiveness, so we are free from the penalty of our sin. We are free from the law. Christ fulfilled all of that. And when he rose again, he made us in Christ, not on our own. In Christ, we are now more than conquerors. We are now changed in our heart. Our heart is no longer darkened. Our heart now can be 
filled with the love of God, our mind now is no longer debased, but it is free now to be set on the things of the Spirit and to say no to sin and yes to God. We have been changed. There is a new life in us because of what Christ did on the cross and when he rose again. We in Christ are now more than conquerors. That's a reality. That's not a mystery. That's not an ethic. That's not a moral high ground to try and achieve. That is by faith what we choose to trust is real because that's what God says is true. And that's where we go in chapter 4. Any last verses in chapter 3? Okay, chapter 4 is about faith. Our relationship with God now is by faith alone in Christ alone. Like Abraham, we can be fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised in Christ Jesus. Something I hear a lot lately, I've, well, I've been hearing it for a while, but it's like I've, now I'm seeing it in commercials and I'm seeing it here and there, but I hear people say this. They say something like, I don't know what I would do without faith. Somehow, like, their faith is in their faith. Does that make sense? Like, they're, it's like, just have faith. To me, that sounds a lot like morality. Versus, and people might not be meaning that, but I think a lot of people do mean that. I don't know what I would do without my faith. It's like, well, what is your faith in? But it is not my faith I trust. It's just, it's Jesus I trust, so I put my faith in him. So what a Christian should say is not, I don't know what I would do without my faith, right? I don't know what I'd do, with, that's like loving myself. Like, I don't know what I would do without my faith. What a Christian should say is, I don't know what I would do without Jesus. I don't know what I would do if I were still dead in my sin. I don't know what I would do if I was just guilt ridden. I don't know what I would do if I were living in darkness with no hope. I don't know what I would do without Jesus, who forgives me, who gives me new life, who gives me power through his Holy Spirit, and who gives me hope for eternal life. I don't know what I would do without him. Do you see? It's a person. It's not an object. It's not self-righteousness, and it's not my faith. It's all Jesus from beginning to end to eternity. So Christians say, I don't know what I'd do without Jesus. The book of Romans is not about my faith. It's a chapter in the book of Romans because it's letting us know we don't work to gain favor with God. Right? It's about the love and mercy of God through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And by grace, I am invited to die, to be buried, and to be raised in new life in him. I do this by faith, not by works. That's faith. Any verse in chapter 4 you would like to read out loud? Did I miss something that's crucial to you and your relationship with Jesus? Okay, read it out loud for us. Do we walk in that blessedness? We are blessed. That is a reality. That's good. Anybody else have a verse that meant a lot to them in chapter 4? That's what he's done with us. 
we were dead and he brought that to life and then things that were not possible that weren't even in existence that's grace right not just the mercy that we were forgiven but now we have the power of the holy spirit living in us that didn't used to exist that didn't even exist with adam and eve that's incredible it's great I, yes. Well, I just wanted to go back to the verse that Cheryl said. Okay, read the verse. Okay, and I know different Bibles have different Okay, things. cool. This says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. But what I think is exciting is when you put my disobedience, Sandy's disobedience is forgiven. That's awesome. Yeah. And you could do that with somebody that you're ministering to. Like if I were ministering to Sunny, right? And I was, and she was like, I just don't believe that God was forgiving me. So you could turn to that past and say, Sunny, your disobedience has been forgiven. Sunny, your, right? We can minister the gospel to people. All right. I want to say something in the middle of this, too. I was listening to a tape by um, Tim Keller, and he said this, and I'm like, I am gonna, you're, you guys are going to get tired of me saying this. When something is a truth and a reality, if in all of our teaching and in our discussions, if you're like, I just don't understand it, and I'm kind of going back to what you said about his faith increased as he trusted God. So more and more, his faith, so he would trust God and then his faith would increase. Then he would trust God and his faith would increase. What I would tell you is if there's something that is true in Scripture, again, mystery is one thing. We're going to define a mystery in a minute. But if something is true in Scripture, if it does not make sense to you, if you're having a hard time grasping it in your reality, and it's like, and what Rhonda told, like, that just doesn't make sense to me at all. Don't stop seeking the truth. Until it becomes your life. Again, truth means reality. So until something that might be in your head is in your heart and then even through your life to others, you will, you'll see the Holy Spirit do that. Again, you don't do that. The Holy Spirit does it as your mind and your heart get aligned with the truth and the realities. You'll see your faith begin to grow. So just because I don't explain something well or any of the teachers don't explain something well or when you've read through the scriptures, it doesn't make sense the first time, don't keep, don't stop, keep seeking. Don't stop. Keep seeking. And I'll give you some resources at the end that can help you do that. But the first place to seek is always the scriptures. Chapter 5 starts off. This is awesome. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been made right with God by the blood of Christ. Because of all that Christ has done for us. It's interesting to me when you read, and we're going to see this throughout the letters, when you see any time there's spiritual warfare, it, most of the time, I want to say all the time, but I don't know that it, it explicitly says it, but most of the time it explicitly says, stand firm in Christ. So it would be like this. I'm going to go. This is who I am. This is my hope. This is my forgiveness. This is my life. This is my Lord. He is my head. I'm going to stand firm in him no matter what. I'm not going to rely on myself. I'm not going to look for other things to please me. God is satisfying to me. 
And I want to always make myself happy in him. That's the Christian life. Stand firm in Christ. Never leave him. He promises to never leave you. And victory is never leaving him. The Holy Spirit, and he's not just a picture on a TV screen above my head. Literally, the Holy Spirit is inside of me, changing me, convicting me of sin, giving me power over sin in that moment, giving me life. He's at work all around me, so I want to be in tune with him. But even when I talk about spiritual things, the only reason I can be confident in the Holy Spirit is because Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for all of my sins upon him, and his righteousness was pulled out on, poured out on me. So now when God sees me, he sees the crucified Christ for me and the resurrected Christ for me. This is how God sees me. I stand firm in this. That's what chapter 5 is about. I am made right with God by this alone and by my faith alone. That's the Christian life, that we then walk in, in that. So chapter 5, I think a couple of verses, verses um, 8 in particular. Well, in chapter 5, and see, this is, this is a thing, right? So this is where we begin seeing a little bit of the battle that's to come. But it says that God shows his love for us, and what, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it also says God shows his love for us, and he poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts to fill our hearts with the love of God. So if you don't have a sense in your heart of God's love, there's a chance you don't have the Holy Spirit. And the only reason you don't have the Holy Spirit is if you're not in Christ. We're going to get to that in the end. But you becoming a Christian wasn't just that when you're in a church service somewhere, somebody said, do you believe in Jesus? And you raised your hand. Now, in that moment, you might have become a Christian. Your heart and your mind might have repented of your sin and you turned to Christ in faith. But if you're just relying on one time at a point in time, I walked to the front of a church or I just raised my hand, that's a work. That's not faith. Does that make sense? So there needs to be a point in time where you receive Jesus Christ and his life, death, burial, and resurrection as your salvation and your hope and your life. We can't save ourselves by raising our hands. We can't save ourselves by walking to the front of the church. Only Jesus saves us. My faith doesn't save me. Jesus saves me. So I put my faith in him. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to mess with words. I'm trying to be really clear. Jesus Christ saves, period. That's what chapter 5 is about. And the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that is the love of God. In verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Another version said, live in triumph over sin and death free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's the, we are more than conquerors. In Jesus, you can reign in this life. You can live in triumph over sin and death. You know why? Not because you try hard, but because Christ has already done that for you, and now the Holy Spirit will do that through you as you remain in him. Not by trying harder. So the word there that the scripture uses is imputed. All of my sin and all of my darkness was put on Christ at the cross, and it was buried with him. All my sin, all my darkness, my debased mind, my darkened heart, died with Christ and was buried. That's the old man. That's 
my Adam life. It died and was buried with Christ. Then, just as Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, I, in Christ, raise to new life in him, victorious over sin and death. That's the Christian life. Any verses from chapter 5? Yes. Okay, just read, just read the verse because I want to keep us going so you guys can be in small groups. Three through five. verses on how the Holy Spirit lives through our life as we have faith in Christ and go through the trials of this world. He literally uses those trials to transform us. That is actually true of the Christian life. Yeah, good one. Let's move on to chapter 6. Um, so again, as we remain in Christ, we now have new life. Can you put up the... I don't... don't let this picture pass from your mind. This is, we don't ever leave this. Actually, 1 Corinthians 15 says, let me just read it for you real quick. Oh, I'm going the wrong way. Ah. First Corinthians 15, verse 1 and 2 says, um, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Um, that's the gospel. I, I like the way the ESV says it by which we were saved, and by which we still stand. So one thing I would recommend that you do is when you're going through sufferings, when you're going through hard things, when you're going through doubts or struggles, to preach the gospel to yourself again. So we're never going to leave this. As Christ followers, this isn't something that like is the elementary beginnings. And then once you're a Christian, then you move on to some new religious experience right? This is the gospel by which we are saved, by which we are still being saved, and in which we stand until Jesus returns. And even in heaven, we're going to be glorifying him as the perfect lamb. So we never leave this. I'm taking the picture away, but we never leave this, okay? But what now, Roman? Oh, so I was going to say, if you don't know how to preach the gospel to yourself, Billy Graham will help you. This is a, his classic sermons. And I thought, you know what? Read back through scripture but also, if you're having a hard day, man, maybe this is a resource that you have, and you just read him preaching the gospel to you. We always remain in the gospel, and sometimes we need to preach the gospel to our problems and our struggles. And through that, um, the Lord will transform us. But verse 6, I mean chapter 6, basically now we are a new creation. So now in Christ, because our sins and our darkness and our debased mind and our darkened heart we're died with him on the cross. We're buried in the grave with him. Now we are raised by the same Holy Spirit to walk in a newness of life with him. Things have changed. We are now victorious over sin and death. That is our reality. And this person is glowing as they walk out of the tomb, right? But basically, why do we glow? Why do we have this glory? Life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He is our faith. He is our life. That's the Christian life. Chapter 6. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Wow. Wow. Verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how, this is how we are to consider ourselves, dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Verse 13, so present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. Things have changed. Things have changed. Quickly, chapter 7. But there's still a battle. Right? So 6 is like this victorious place. And if you're going to like preach the gospel to yourself in the midst of your struggles, chapter 6 would be a great chapter to just read to yourself. Just keep reading over and over. I think I read to you that some of these great guys of the faith would read Romans every week. Like even guys who are preachers every week have to remain in the gospel and they read Romans every week. I'm like, oh, that's a good Saturday practice. Man, I'll just go outside. Birds are chirping. I'll let the realities of Jesus and the truths of Christ just refresh, renew, repent probably, right? Chapter 7, but there's still a battle. We face temptations in our flesh, and we still fight against the strong and powerful pull of sin. If there was one thing that chapter 7 communicated to us, it's that sin is powerful. We still can't, we, we couldn't save ourselves. There's no possible way. And without the Holy Spirit, we are not victorious over sin. So we must remain in Christ, abide in him, and let him abide in us. And we abide in the word. And the word abides in us. And we keep our minds set on the spirit. And we obey what the spirit prompts us to do. And in that we have victory over sin. Because sin is powerful. I have a quick illustration. We, so we're still in the flesh. But I think a lot of Christians do this. This is a... Right? So I feel like what a lot of times we do is we feel like, this is really embarrassing to stare in a mirror, but it's like we sit here and we just are like, okay, how am I doing? Do I feel like God loves me? Oh, no, now I'm struggling. How do I get through with this? And like I'm just, my, my focus is all on me and my struggles. Could you put back another slide? <laughs> right? So there are times I'm reading in the scripture, and the scripture can be like a mirror, right? Scripture's like, oh, girl, come on, get right with me. And I go, oh, okay. So I don't keep this up when I'm getting right with Jesus, right? I go, the battle's been won. Jesus, forgive me. I, again, have been tempted by sin. I gave into it. But in Jesus Christ, I know that I am forgiven. He'll help me walk in the victory of that. Don't walk around with a mirror on your flesh all the time. We walk around mindful of Christ, mindful of the power of the Holy Spirit. So, okay. Yep, okay. I did this. I thought that. Holy Spirit, what can I do next time? Okay. By the power of Jesus, I will do that. Does that help? All right. Uh, don't stare in the mirror at the battle. That is focusing on the flesh. Focus on the spirit. Stand firm with Jesus as your authority and head over you. Um, peace with God in him. Victory over sin, flesh, Satan in him. Then we can put down the mirror and take up a, a frame of purpose. But chapter 7 tells us sin is no joke. If you want to understand the battle a little bit more and the power of sin, because I think in this world, again, we think we're pretty moral, so we're pretty asleep to the power of sin. I listened to two podcasts, Jamie 
did two, Jane. No. Tim Keller has on the battle of your two selves. Now, he doesn't really say that you have two selves, but basically he uses the book Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to describe basically that when we're trying to be good and actually when we are not trying to be good, that both are sinful and that we need Jesus Christ to save us. It's a pretty, pretty powerful, right? Look at the struggle, but just be ready to be really um, in need of a good sermon afterwards. <laughs> um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Even when he's being good in the book, he looks down at his hands and they're hairier than ever because of the pride and the comparison that he's better than other people. We got to remain in Christ. All right. Um, chapter eight, you're really going to talk about this. We've already kind of talked about it a little bit in your groups. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Um, the spirit, not the flesh, is our controlling influence. TK, you brought up a great question last week. We don't have two masters. Sin has been conquered. We have one master that controls us if you're a Christian. And that's the Holy Spirit. And I say, if you're a Christian, because Paul says that. The Spirit controls you if you have the Spirit. And how do you have the Spirit? Christ alone. Um, yeah, so the Spirit, not the flesh, is our controlling influence. The flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness and uses the resources in its own power to try and fill it. The flesh is the I who tries to satisfy me with anything but God's mercy. But the conflict in your soul is not bad, even though we long for a day when our flesh will be utterly defunct and only pure and loving desires will fill our hearts. Yet there is something worse than the war within between the flesh and the spirit. Namely, that there's no war within because the flesh controls me. So the sign of whether you are indwelt by the Spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. Does that make sense? So the battle is actually a sign that you do have the Holy Spirit. When you're convicted of sin, that doesn't mean that you are lost to sin. It probably means that you have the Holy Spirit pointing out your sin for you to confess and repent of. That's a really good thing. That's a really good thing when you have the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. It's a really good thing when you feel the battle and you're being urged to win the battle. That means you have the Holy Spirit because when you don't confess sin, when you're not aware of sin, when you don't care about the battle, you're either quenching the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit in the first place. So the battle actually is a sign of the Spirit. But in the midst of that, you will have the Spirit also who cries out, Abba, Father. The love of God has been poured out in your life. You do have hope in Christ, but there is a battle for that. So we set our mind on our willful choice to keep our heart happy in God by resting on his promises in Jesus Christ. Chapters 9 through 11 are basically, and I'm not going to read it. I'm going to close out our time. Um, but what I want us to look at is in chapter 10, there is one message and we are all called to carry it out. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised us from the dead, you will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whether Jew or Gentile is what Paul was trying to say. Whether Jew or Gentile, all will be saved through Jesus Christ. How God hardened hearts, how God, for a period of time, brought grafted some in, and then once they're grafted in, how he's going to bring others back, right? That can just, like, make your head spin. And how Paul sums that up in chapter 11 is... I want you to, verse 25, I want you to understand this mystery, right? There's the mystery. How does God do what he does? Why did he do what he did? Why in his timing did he not do certain things and did he do certain things with certain people and not other people? 
That's called a mystery. Let me tell you what you do with the mystery. And it's exactly what Paul did with the mystery, which is verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. We worship. So in realities and in truth, we obey them. We walk in them. They are our, our life. We trust them. And if we don't understand them, we keep seeking to understand them. That's what we do with truth. With mysteries, we trust and we worship and we wait. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Not me. Who knows enough to give him advice? Not me. <laughs> and who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. That's how chapters 1 through 11 go. So in your small groups, I want you to spend some time um, talking about, and I gave these questions to your leaders. Have you by faith believed that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection have saved you and set you free? Do you confess him as Lord of your life? I have been. Do, do you say this? Again, I'm going to use Sandy's example. Rhonda has been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer Rhonda who lives, but Christ who lives in her. And the life that Rhonda now lives, she lives by faith in the Son of God who loved Rhonda and gave himself up for her. Galatians 2.20. Do you believe that with your heart? Do you confess Jesus as Lord? Second, have you been baptized? Chapter 6 talks about that. This is your first opportunity to personally declare the message. That was part of ch uh, verse or chapter 10, was that how is anybody going to know about salvation unless somebody goes and tells them? It's a message to be shared for everybody. And the first way you share it is by being baptized with your church family. You're declaring the life, death, burial, and resurrection and newness of life in Christ whenever you're baptized. But then after that, all of us are called to make disciples. All of us are called to send the message. But we do it with our different gifting. Not all our preachers, not all our teachers, but all are disciple makers with a message. Third question, what does it look like for you to set your mind on the Spirit? What does that look like for you to set your mind on the Spirit? And talk about your experience of meditating on Romans 8. So I want to leave you with this song, possibly a message to talk about with your groups as well. It's not, we're not going to be able to sing along with it. It's kind of a pop song, Stephen Curtis Chapman, a few years ago. But the illustration might help us. So if you do understand these truths... What in this world kind of causes you to fall asleep to them? Kind of be lethargic. You know, whenever your child is lethargic, you actually will take them to a doctor. <laughs> but we're lethargic all the time in our Christian faith. And even 1 Corinthians 15, he says, wake up and stop sinning. Look at what Christ has done for you and enjoy the glory Here's a song to kind of help with some of the illustrations of us being asleep and what to be awake to. And then you can go to your groups and have a great discussion.